Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today on the Hay Kings podcast, we're joined by Scott Swanson. Scott and I are going to talk about old equipment and new equipment and some lessons we learned along the way on all of those things. We're going to talk about new marketing strategies and equipment to get into those markets. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, John. Uh, definitely a pleasure to be on here. Where did you start? Well, I was born and raised in Niobrara, Nebraska, northeast part of the state. Fourth generation to the operation of the Swanson Farm or Swanson Family Operation. My dad's always always been row cropping and raising cattle, background in cattle on the feedlot. Grandma actually had a pheasant hunting operation or pheasant preserve where they'd raise, hatch pheasants, and then also turn those pheasants out to hunt and also sell those pheasants to other other operations or or just people that wanted birds to put out on their place for family hunts. Kind of a grew up in a really diversified operation. And then also my parents also owned a bar and steakhouse when I was a little kid. So to kind of go against what most people would say is the right way to grow up, I got to grow up in a bar <laughs> <laughs> along, along with the farming operation. So I got a pretty diverse background, I'd say, compared to a lot of people <laughs> in my age. Anyway, I'm only 35. Got to see and do a lot of things, talk to interesting people. <laughs> we did row crop of like corn and beans was our main thing. And then we did do some like winter wheat. We did do some oats and milo in there. Not a whole lot of those though. And then also we had a cow-calf operation and then we just, we'd take the calves in and background them. We would never finish whenever I was, at least whenever I was old enough to be a part of the operation. Uh, But mom and dad did quite a bit of that beforehand. And I guess just growing up in it, I really enjoyed the haying part, or maybe that was the easiest part for dad to stick me into, but got to run a I don't know what the model number is, but it was, it, was, it was an old white tractor with a cab. The air conditioner didn't work and had little pop-out windows. <laughs> Run a nine-foot sickle bar, John Deere sickle mower, cutting hay all day. Dad would haul me out to the hay field at like around 7.30 and have a gallon water jug sticking in the corner of the cab. And my uncle would be out there as well. He'd, he'd start off the day in a cabless 40-20 John Deere nine foot sickle bar and we'd be going around that field around that field we'd quit for lunch for an hour and then we'd come back and he'd jump in that white tractor and i'd get on that 40 20 and we'd run oh my gosh you know thought you conquered the day you know he thought we cut a lot of acres and probably when you're all said and done at the end of the day might have got 50 or 60 acres you're saying cutting in tandem (laughs) with two nine foot sickle bars yeah oh yeah i mean we were I think I was, I don't know, I was eight or nine. I mean, thought I was conquering the world, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, and then you progress. So like, I mean, I got to pile bales and got to, you know, got to cut a little hay when I was in that age range and, uh, or with the, with the self-propelled is what I'm trying to say. I got to cut a little bit of hay with the self-propelled. I think, what the heck was it? Like a John Deere 2280, I think was a number on that old self-propelled. That thing just seemed like it took forever, but the crazy thing is it cut just as much as those two old nine nine footers. It was just nuts. Yeah, that twenty two eighty had a fourteen foot head on it, didn't it? It did, yeah. Yeah. Man, you the worst part of that thing was that old reel was just it was big and bulky. It almost like being you know, being younger, <laughs> it almost like make you hallucinate or put you in a 
put you in a trance. You just sit there just tired and exhausted like you actually busted your butt all day. Um, <laughs> just watching but, that reel go around nice and hypnotic-like. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. You know, what was crazy, though, is we had those nine-foot sickle bars, um, had the rivets in the sections. We didn't hardly change any sections. You know, you hardly ever had knockouts. And we went to that 2280, and it seemed like, good grief. You know, you'd, you'd make, I don't know, eight, ten rounds or maybe a little bit more. You'd, you'd knock a section or two out. Yeah, it was just it was unreal. And then, you know, graduated up a little bit later in life, and finally the disc heads come out. Uh, I know John Deere had an earlier model, but the, no- the number we jumped into is a 49.95 and had a 15 foot head good grief man went from you know that 2280 i think it, i think we were maybe cutting like four mile an hour or something like yeah. that once while you get up over five if you're lucky five then, six uh, five six acres yeah. an hour is about all you can do with that yeah i mean man you you really were covering ground in that in that era 320 i think new holland or something mm-hmm. like that. that's what we ended up with a 16 foot real head Mm-hmm. And you could start cutting in that six, six and a half range on alfalfa. I mean, man, it was like, whoa, this is where we needed to be. Like, we're running with the big dogs now, you know. <laughs> is like really impressed, which is really nice cabin those too. Then you get down the road about 12 mile an hour, or it was 11, 11 point something anyway. Um, yeah, just screaming then, down the road 11 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. It was so good, you know. And one thing we were pretty fortunate, all of our fields, we were, we were, all of our land was pretty well connected. The family's land was all connected. So, you know, we could cut across pasture tops or we could cut across other fields if we had to. So it wasn't like some operations where to go from one field to a field that's maybe 10 miles away, you know, it took all day. Uh, we were pretty fortunate by the road. It might've been say seven miles to our furthest field, but we'd take off and cut across through the hills or the pastures, cut that down two, three hours, you're up there, you know, and you're, you get a productive day that way. You know, then that John Deere with that MoCo, the disc head on it came and good grief. I mean, then you're starting to talk, you know, you start getting into that like 12 mile an hour, I think was a cutting speed on that thing. At least 10 you're acres cutting. an hour, right? Just about. It double. was. Yeah, it was. That's at least that's what the monitor always told me anyway. I never, I just, I hate to say it, but I mean, I was just looking for five o'clock <laughs> at that point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you could cover the ground then, you know, went from, you know, you hired a guy just cause you didn't have enough time in the day to get anything, which is always, you know, the story for everything. Yep. But we had that extra guy because you needed to be getting the rake and the rake ready, or you need to be getting the baler ready. And then we jumped into that disc head and all of a sudden you, you really didn't need that extra guy if you weren't looking to just really become efficient or really grow. I shouldn't really say on the efficient part, but... To really push and put up a big volume of hay is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And in that same time frame, that's at the same time we went from just doing round bales to doing big square bales. Yeah, Heston 4755 was our first 3x3 three three baler, which is really crazy to say is we bought 30,000 bales on it when we bought it when dad was telling me that he was thinking about buying this thing, I mean, you talk about like a leap of faith, like this, he was nervous. <laughs> we put that thing on the farm and, you know, we can knock the acres down and then turn around. You had the rake ready to go and the baler ready to go. You had semi set in there. I mean, you could go out and get something done that night or you could really, you could get a, you could get some rest in before whenever you're going into a night of knowing you're going to be out there literally till the sun comes up the next day. Ah, so um, you guys are in a dry enough spot where you had to bail at night. 
At times, yeah, yeah. It was we were in a really unique area as well. I guess that's I probably should have added to that a little bit of how I in the diversification, but so where Niobrara is is the Missouri River was the state's north boundary, which is against where Niobrara is. Mm-hmm. And then there's what's called the Niobrara River, which is just an in-state only river, but it runs from the west edge of the state out of Wyoming all the way out to the Missouri River there in Niobrara. And our land laid up into that Niobrara River Valley, which is a very wide and deep river valley. So it's kind of crazy. It definitely it definitely creates a lot of humidity at different times. It'll also kind of back off. I guess kind of depends on your pressure system and make a huge difference on that. Also had a lot of really good ground moisture. Like your dryland acres, literally you could, sometimes you could dig down six, eight feet, and hit water. Like I had an excavator at one point and digging trees out and digging a hole to put the trees in to burn them. But yeah, you can dig down eight feet. Literally, water just start gushing up out of the ground. <laughs> oh, that's so, a pretty high water table. It, it is, yeah. Like the soil wasn't right, though, to say dig a well and get good irrigation water, though, was the only bad part. So it was, it was like a bittersweet part in there. Sure. Um, just enough water to cause troubles. Yeah, exactly. It was. But alfalfa loved it. You know, that was one thing. I mean, you're talking like first cutting, we could easily get two ton to the acre, a little over two ton to the acre on first cut. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff is always big, heavy, rank, Stammy. Like hard to dry down. Yep. Yeah. It'd lay over, you know, and then that comes back to the sickle, the sickle heads or the reel heads. You'd have to run slow and let that reel really work to pick that stuff up off the ground to get it to cut. Yep. And it was just nasty. And then when you'd slug, that stuff was just slimy. <laughs> Yep. That disc head is a different game. It was. It was incredible because, you know, I mean, yeah, you you know, you had to slow down a little bit if you wanted to pick up, but you were still running six to eight mile an hour range and it would, I don't know if that air would just cause a little vacuum, but it would almost it'd lift that hay a little bit and get you a cut or you could tip that head a little better and get a better cut on it. And then that way, second cutting was cleaner, gave us a better option to get a better quality up to put in a big square bale maybe. I think that's um, what people will tell you is those disc headers do create a little bit of a vacuum. Yeah. They, that can be good or bad. If you're in wet conditions, it's not too bad. But if you're real yeah. dry, you can pull up some dirt into that windrow. Yes. Like that was one thing in our area. Um, Nebraska is well known for the sand hills. And we weren't in the sand hills, but later in life, we did venture out to the east edge of the sand hills and cover some acres just to, just to get the tonnage. But we were definitely in a sandy area, um, did have a lot of clay though. So pretty good soils and spots. And they had some pretty, pretty dry stuff due to the sand or the clay get really tight, <laughs> make mid for interesting farming. Oh, um, I can relate to all of that. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, yeah, no kidding. In fact, Scott, yeah. I could relate to this entire conversation in a way I never expected. I'm in the process of upgrading a swather right now, and I'm kind of looking at a 4990 to replace a 12-foot yeah. sickle mower. So to hear you say that I'm going to gain a whole bunch of acres an hour and save on labor is kind of a nice thing to hear. Darn right. And those machines are so much nicer. They're so much more operator-friendly nowadays. I mean, like, kids that were growing up in town, and we'd bring them out to the operation, and we'd try to teach them and help them. And they'd get in there, we'd show them what to do, and they'd run it. You know, that's that's one thing. The machines that came a lot, I don't know, just user-friendly on in general. And 
better visibility is another big thing out of them. And then those disc heads are a little more forgiving than that sickle. So, you know, you can feel a vibration if there's something wrong. There's something to tattletale a little bit better than a section goes out right where the windrow is. And yeah, and you no can't cord. see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it always seemed like the that's, when that section went out, unless you were the guy that really, really cared about how your work looked or if you were the owner of the thing, yep. you know, you didn't, you didn't take the look. You didn't take the time to look. Um, but at least that disc head, it'll – It'll let you know. It starts vibrating at you. It's like, hey, we better we better get out and take a look. You know, <laughs> you gotta, yeah, you got mud built up or blade broke or, you know, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of nice. It certainly yeah. takes a special eye to look back at that windrow and go, something's not right. There, yeah, what, there's what? a little strip of hay under there that's not cut. <laughs> that's right. It's like, why is there a mo? There's a tick of a mohawk showing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you come back after you bailed, and there's six or eight rounds, and you're going, oh, that looks horrible. <laughs> well, what's even worse about that is, is whenever you go to that coffee shop, or if you go to the bar, or something like that, and you're, or you know, you got to hear all the neighbors. It's or always the field right next to the road, too. <laughs> darn right yeah <laughs> it's never the one clear in the back that nobody ever sees it's the one right next to the road <laughs> yes <laughs> good luck <laughs> yeah thanks it makes you want to hook onto the shredder and take off out there and get it cut right after you get done raking like you don't want anybody to see that thing <laughs> so much of it it's just an inch or two wide a lawnmower would do the trick Hey, man, that's one thing. These new zero turns around now, (laughs) they'll get down the road 12 mile an hour. (laughs) Cut some hay. (laughs) The biggest reason I'm looking at that 4990, I I don't put a tremendous amount of hay up, but I do try to do it in a short window of time. We're only single cutting dryland Timothy. Oh, wow, yeah. And we're trying to put up a year's worth of hay in three or four weeks. That's our entire hay season. Yeah, from the time you start, you're a little bit early and you're not quite at full yield. But by the time you get done, it's dry. Really? June's our wet season and the end of July is as dry as it gets. Man, that'd make for, uh, that'd make for a stressful uh, 30 days. Well, then, <laughs> I, then I have uh, some irrigated alfalfa and nothing like trying to do second cutting right in the middle of first cutting grass. Oh, man. And, and kind of like you, we're in a dry enough spot. Or you got to bail in the middle of the night sometimes. Yeah. So I get into we, the pickle where where we have grass hay that's ready to go and alfalfa ready to go at the same time, and you're hauling the baler back and forth and bailing 24 hours, and you can get kind of tired doing that. You nailed it. That's exactly how ours was about second cutting. That's we had a bunch of prairie hay. And then also with my grandma's hunting operation, we had a lot of CRP or set-aside acres. And... At that time, we were able to hay 33% of that thing every year. We had a lot of acres of it. Uh, we'd run into that same situation because that's what would be in that. Right around the 4th of July, it always seemed like it was right around the 4th. It'd get really hot, really dry, and that grass was just, you could literally see it changing color every day. Historically, what I'd tell you is we started cutting hay the first nice day after the 4th of July. Now, the last couple of years, we've been starting earlier. And I'm not quite sure what's driving that. Every once in a while, we can put up some export quality Timothy. One day to the next, 95 or 100 degrees can be the difference between making export grade and not. Yes. So as I'm looking at this mower, what can I do 
to get it done faster. You're on it. That's a big part that I left out. When we made that transition from that sickle bar or that reel head to the to the disc mower, that's it. Because, yeah, you cover the acres. You're going to change from you know 60 or 80 acres a day if, you, if you've got that kind of ground that is, that's flat and square. Yep. To all of a sudden, you know, you're going to be in that 100, 120 acres in a day if you want to. You know, that's that's what's nice about that cutter. Because that was definitely what we were able to do. We, I mean, we were getting into that 80 acres just with no trouble at all. Could get 100 no trouble mm-hmm. without just totally wearing yourself out before having to put in that long night. Because even like now, like I've got a, a 9870 Massey. And I mean, that thing, you can cut 17 mile an hour. When I was in Nebraska, we'd cut, I had, a, I had an irrigated field that's 220 acres and literally kid that was working for me, he would get over to that field around eight or eight thirty in the morning and start cutting the first rounds on that field. He'd come out of there out of that thing twelve hours later, every cutting. Yep. <laughs> He'd come out of thing at twelve hours. I mean two hundred and twenty acres laid flat. You know, we're ready to go. And that's what's really nice with those is that just the timing of getting that stuff all on the ground at the same time. Like you're saying that the export quality is, it allows you to gain that extra quality to be able to put in that bale that's that's of a better grade than what it might have been 24 hours or 48 hours later from being beat down by the sun or or catch that later day and end up with high humidity or you know or 40 mile an hour wind or something like that possibly <laughs> and can't rake it together to save your life I, um, I haven't seen high humidity very many times but i have seen a 40 acre field of hay blown up against a fence <laughs> yep. Why can't it just blow it into a windrow so you can bail it? <laughs> that's a that's the one thing I always wished. I was like, yeah, you'd see that whole field laid up against that fence and just stare at it like, oh. how do I deal with this? <laughs> yeah, you go and get the rake and the baler yep. and the harrow bed all at once. <laughs> <laughs> that's they used to do some uh, the old farmhand sweeps and used to make the old stacks. Yep. Uh, had one neighbor when I was old enough to see it anyway, I had one neighbor that was still doing it. And the one thing that always crossed my mind after the wind would just literally sweep a field clean, you'd sit there and look at that sweep and just be like, man, I wonder how that would work. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the right tool for this scenario. That's right. Yeah. Dad had a couple of those laying up on the hill. My dad wouldn't throw, I mean, he'd throw stuff away, but he'd never, he'd never actually get rid of it. It was just sitting up on the side of the hill or in a pile. <laughs> I know. That's that's a pretty normal farmer thing. Yeah, it is. That's it, man. We had those sweeps. We had those sweeps and those little farm hands sitting there. And I don't know how many different times I'd tell him, I'm like, gosh, that's some really good square tubing. I'm like, I could cut that up and use it or something. He's like, stay out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Might need that for something. Like what? You know, like what do you want it for, man? I'm like, we got we got projects we could use that for, you know, like put an extension on the semi trailer and haul another four more bales. I'm like that, you know, that gave me another, you know, hundred bucks, you know, on the load. And he's like, I don't care. You can go buy your own iron. <laughs> like, oh gosh, man, come on. <laughs> so a little bit interesting every now and then. You know, one of the things I've learned is that iron really isn't that expensive, especially if you start talking about that $100 a load kind of stuff. Iron's pretty cheap, and if you have some spare time and you're willing to manufacture stuff, it's pretty economical. It absolutely is, yeah. You see it a lot, the strapping thing, you know, like uh, iron on a, on a hay trailer. We put those side rails and it kick it up about six or eight inches, mm-hmm. and it helped kick those bales into the trailer, into the center. And then we'd double row, so you'd be two wide on the bottom and 
and too wide on tops so would be too wide too and too high. And then for strapping sakes, oh my goodness, man, you'd strap those things. I mean, you'd give it all you got anyway, just so it's safe, but literally bad to say, but you could really round some corners. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, we ran five by six round bales. <laughs> oh, geez. So uh, yeah. again, we're on the same page here in a way I didn't expect. So I grew up on a dairy and we had a, a 604J Vermeer baler so we were running four by fives yeah we had a trailer that must have been 16 feet let me think about this five foot diameter bales stacked like beer cans four long two high and two wide so we were getting 16 bales on that trailer plus one on the grapple and we had the same kind of setup on that trailer where the edges were kicked up a little bit and it made the bales lean in against one another Yep. When we're hauling on the farm, not ever seeing a county road, you just put 16 bales on and one of the grappling off to the barn you went. You can get about 1,000 pounds into one of those bales, especially in alfalfa. You start talking eight and a half tons at a trip, you can get some hay hauled in a day. Clean a field off in a good amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> and that was our thing with that, too, as well, is if it was one of those trying to beat a rainstorm or something, you know, and clean, or if we bought the hay out of a field, we'd drive along with the semi or a guy would be in the semi driving along and then I'd me or dad would be running the tractor and setting those bales on while having those rails that kick, like you said, you know, kick it up. Then we didn't have to strap until we got done loading it. Then at that point we could do that. So we were good in the curves. You know, we were hitting the public roads with that thing, but, and then, but you did nail it though, is like on our family land, everything was connected. If we were on ours and we had roads through it, but yep. we'd get on those and man, like you said, I mean, there you were good. I mean, it wasn't that you got carried away, but you could go nice and easy and save you that extra 20 minutes of messing around with straps. And those things save, man, they save you so much monkeying around. That That's the best part. We had a little bit taller ones. We bought a trailer one time. I think they probably came up 10 to 12 inches. Even on big square bales, they still fit inside those rails. Mm-hmm. But just having those, like rubbing on those bales, it also helped being across the field. They never... They didn't try to sway much, I guess, because they had that extra brace holding them in there as well. Worked pretty good, you know, gathering bales in the field with the with the semi driving along on the loader, loading them. And then that way he could take off for the hay barn while you're still gathering bales out there. Help clean up a little quicker. But yeah, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of overlap here because yeah. I've run a 320 New Holland. I've owned a 2280 John Deere. And now I'm looking at that 4990 John Deere disc mower. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> if my wife ever allows me to trade the 9870, we'll have to talk. <laughs> I just don't know if she's going to let me. The price tags on these things have gotten way out of hand. That's kind of my thought press. I saw on this uh, 4990. It pretty well has the capacity of a newer machine. It's used. It's yeah. probably well used. But for somewhere between five and 600 acres I'm trying to get over in a short period of time, it's probably going to work. And I get the yeah. efficiencies and the new stuff and the cost of something that's used. That's the thing. You're in a good machine. They're well built. They've got a really, really good skid plate under the head of them. I mean, so like if, if you have any, I don't know if you get into some of that rockier terrain or anything like that, that thing's going to take it really well. It's definitely not a worry. What's also nice too since things have changed so much over the last probably what six years i mean how many different models and cutters that have came out in that amount of time so what's cool about that is like you go back into that model 
I mean, it's depreciated down truly as far as it's going to be for quite a while. Yeah. So barring a catastrophic failure that the price tag on what I'm paying versus what I can sell it for, it's going to change a little bit, but not a lot. There's always going to be demand for a used machine where somebody doesn't want to make a quarter, uh, pay a quarter million bucks for a, a new swather. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's thing you're talking about being able to get multiple years out of it, you know, and, and still being able to turn around and flip that thing if you ever want to. Kind of like that forty twenty you were talking about. I have one oh. of those too. The forty twenty now is worth what it was new. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you take into account inflation, and it's worth less. But yeah. <laughs> the nominal value is is the same. That's right, man. Most dependable stuff because you, you don't have all this all this junk they've got on. I'm sorry to say it, but man, the sensors and the relays that they put on these things that oh, drive me nuts. You know. It, you know, that certainly is a conversation that agriculture's having. I hope yeah. that somewhere along the line we can have a civil conversation about, do I want to be able to service my equipment? Do I want to be able to at least do the troubleshooting and get started on the fix? That's right. You know, the companies yeah. that I like best right now are the ones that yeah. don't require you to uh, have a service tech come out. The right. reality of the situation is... There's all sorts of laws and regulations that they have to conform to, and they have to make it so you can't screw with their stuff. Yep. The equipment manufacturers are operating in in the environment that they have to, and we have to figure out how we want to respond. You think that are, well, the manufacturers know it. I mean, you look at the the sales, early 90s, late 80s equipment. I know, right? Even even early 2000s. I mean, the resale value is insane on them. You know, <laughs> Maybe my forty twenty is getting more valuable. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I mean, especially you go into like row crop country in the central Midwest up there. Like, especially like over in Iowa, growing up in Nebraska, go over into Iowa, and those guys would literally they'd remodel a forty twenty, and they'd have it hooked onto a shredder. They might have a little pole type sprayer, and they're spraying the edge of the fields, and they're they're mowing the you know the ditches and everything, the waterways. I mean, just manicure in places with them tractors are immaculate it's something that they can work on too they can tinker with it it's something they can always mess with cheap too is the other thing it's nice oh yeah like absolutely gosh like i've had an r-series john deere and i swear to you every year it'd have a a fuel sensor would go out so the tractor wouldn't even start park it for the winter come out the next spring go to start it nothing great yeah (laughs) call john deere right (laughs) And then same thing, we had a central fill planter, and it was like, go to the field, you'd be planting along. It seemed like every other year, computer would go out on it. It's like, good grief, man, come on. <laughs> Tremendous productivity, and, though, when it, oh, when it is yeah. running. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we could, I mean, yeah, you'd knock out a quarter of ground in a day, no problem. I mean, some some of those times when you're trying to beat some weather, I mean, I think the best I did was just a few acres over 200 one time. Uh, that was a long day. <laughs> I, I was pushing the limit a little bit, trying, you know, and we're putting fertilizer on at the same time. And oh my goodness, you, you just you're wearing yourself out. But it seems like that's kind of the thing. Agriculture's hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, it all has to be done yesterday. Absolutely, yeah. And what's amazing with planting, you know, you think about planting times. It's like you could plant today, wait one week, plant in the same number, same maturity and plant one week from that day, and you'll harvest it one day later. <laughs> right. It's the same moisture. It's just crazy. Right. But 
we fought tooth and nail like it was a race, you know, we got to get there, got to get there. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing, at least with hay, you know, you're always at Mother Nature's mercy and you're, you're always at the capacity's mercy of your equipment. <laughs> Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. I'm Danny Juan and, and I switched to the Vermeer 604R because I believe this baler is built to last. I bail about 4,000 bales a year, and I think as much money you give for a baler, if they need to bail 4,000 bales a year, even if it's for 10 years, they, they need to get it done. The day I ran it, we absolutely had no issues at all. It fired up and I bailed like some guy. <laughs> it just bailed all day long. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. You know, I had the good opportunity to speak at the Ag Outlook Forum in D.C. last week. That was quite the experience. I got to meet the Secretary of Ag, and I was geeking out the whole time. I had somebody ask me if I'm the guy that keeps the balance sheet on hay. You know, the kind where they take the uh, beginning stocks, and you add the production, and you add imports, and you subtract exports, and then you subtract use, and it gets you to some ending stock number. And then you look yeah. at the stocks-to-use ratio, and you can start to make inferences about prices and where the price is going to go, right? Yeah. This, this is the story of corn, soybeans, and wheat. Somebody yeah. asked me if I was the guy for hay. Oh, man. <laughs> and I said, I don't know what kind of fool tries to predict hay prices. That's tough. Because one <laughs> rainstorm, and it all goes out the window. <laughs> absolutely and it's it's yeah. worse when it's one unexpected rainstorm and everybody has hay down there's times in yep. washington where one rainstorm is tens of millions of dollars of damages and lost sales not only just the rainstorm with the hay being down on the field or, or ready to be cut the next day but if that tarp blows off or you get a little bit of hail and it punctures the tarp or you know blows up underneath the roof of the barn i mean right Right. So so many horrible variables. It's not a grain bin. <laughs> no, it's different. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, there, there's right. a lot more shrink on hay. I think. Yeah, the moisture gets up underneath the pile, and well, I, sh- I better be careful on that one. You guys tarp a little different out in your region versus the Midwest. Yeah, us. we do. <laughs> Midwest just throws one up over the top, call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> there's some of that here, but for our good hay, it. It yeah. gets fully wrapped. I don't think most folks know that, that they'll put a tarp down on the ground and then stack hay on top of it, kind of wrap the bottom tarp up the sides, put a top tarp in sides, and and it's a fully oh. wrapped stack. Man, they do a good job. That's It's it's really cool to get to see that. That's that's one thing I'm I'm so happy to have gotten the opportunity to come out there and, and pat Tweety with Stefan's um, haul me along up there to Washington to that Northwest Hay Expo and showing me the different stuff from different hay operations and how they operate and like, like the tarping, you know, and, and he brought it up. I mean, he asked me, he goes, do you, you guys tarp like that? Don't you? And it's like, no, <laughs> not even close, man. <laughs> you mean you don't have two companies that just no. tarp hay? <laughs> yeah. I wish that's but no. <laughs> we, in Washington and, and Idaho, we do. We have a couple of companies that's that's their business, is they yeah. put tarps on haystacks. And then when it's ready to uh, to ship the hay, they come and pick the tarps up and they get reused. Oh, they actually will take them back. Yeah, no, the tarping company's just renting you those tarps. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, so that's they, good, though. Now, you, you only get a couple of uses, and how good your crew is really matters. 
Uh, yeah. But like those side tarps, uh, eventually they turn into the bottom tarps and they'll start poking holes in them and those kind of things. So there, there's a life cycle to those tarps, but they get reused. I don't know. We'd try to get five years out of them, it seemed like. But by the fifth year, it seemed like you had more patch tape over them and more mess and more headache out of it. Hey, yeah, there's no patch spray. tape on these. No. That's oh, how gosh, you, that's really good. <laughs> that's how you identify the bottom tarp. <laughs> Heck, that makes it good. And then those guys then, just kind of out of curiosity here, but say... You know, say you got the hay put up, you know, 30 days later, 45 days later, it had that little bit of shrink and it's time to tighten those up. Does does that tarp company come back around to the fields or is that kind of on the farmer at that point? You know, that's a good question. The hay sweats out. A lot of the yep. time they'll make the stacks with the prevailing wind and leave yep. the top ends open. So if you think about an old red barn with the barn doors, if the barn doors are open and you get that wind blowing through, that's basically what they do with those stacks. And so they do want it loose a little. Not loose. Just the ends are open so you get airflow. Because just like hay in the Midwest, hay sweats no matter yep. where you're at. Yep. And and yep. for a couple of weeks. What the tarps really do is they protect from sun bleach on the outside and, of course, any any rain. I'm going to guess somewhere along the line somebody comes back and tightens those strings just a little bit. Definitely. Yeah, because that was always our thing. It seemed like... We'd get done with first cutting, and then right before we'd go to second cutting, which is always around that, you know, say 26 to 30 days, we'd have to walk out across the field and start drawing her down tight again so next windstorm wouldn't yank the tarp off of there or something like that. I'm no expert, but what they'll tell you is if you align it with the prevailing wind and you leave the ends open, the tarps won't blow off. I mean, it, it makes sense because then at least you're pulling evenly on all the all of the tension strings. That's and, the theory. And anyways. it's drafting. On some of the ones that we've had tore off, yeah, they're either setting kind of kitty corner to the way the wind's hitting them or straight east and west. And they're just catching all of it. On the one side, breaks the twine loose first, and then you get one of those flapping, then it is, then it's in trouble after oh, that. Oh, yeah. Once that tarp's flapping, you're done. Yep. If you're not right there to fix it, it's it's all over but the tears. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I'd have happily paid a tarp company a handful of times rather than riding that big blimp to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> a little interesting from 20 feet in the air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine. A lot of people are probably sitting here thinking whenever they hear this, they're like, yeah, right. But unless you've been there, trust me. You can fly. <laughs> oh, no. No, I've definitely got family that they told me they rolled out of the corner of the tarp, and they, they went up in the air with it. <laughs> yep. Yep. They just about had about the tarp it. down on the stack and were working real quick to get it tied down before the storm blew in, and up in the air they went. And one thing about it, don't let go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll come back down. You will. You just hope that it comes down as nice as it took off up. <laughs> And not come down as a frisbee or a pancake. <laughs> yeah. We definitely have scenarios where the hay gets put up just a little bit too green, and you got to pull the tarps off and let it breathe a little bit. Yeah. So, done that too. On the export hay, they got to be under 12% moisture because as they're filling those uh, containers, 
it rains in the containers if you're too high in moisture. Oh, I suspect man. anybody in the Midwest or East Coast will tell you that that's the thing if they've ever tried to store hay in containers. When you're paying the kind of money that they are, that the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Chinese are paying for this hay, you can't have that. So no. they'll, that the export buyer will come out and stick the moisture meter in, and if it's over 12, they might wait, and they might come back in a month. Or they might say, ah, you should pull this tarp off. <laughs> yeah, darn right. Let let yeah. that stack breathe a little bit. Otherwise, we're not interested. That's, you might be able to move been, it domestically, but you got yeah. moisture's a big deal. That's we've done that a few times. Like the dairy barns, dairy barns are always big about being under sixteen, and then they'd put them in like a hundred by two hundred foot barn and stack it six bales high, and that so that was always our thing. But kind of a similar deal is you know you tarped it just to get away from that rain. But as soon as that rain got away, you know, we might track across the field and make a little bit of a mud track, but we'd, we'd go out, we'd actually stick a tarp under where we're stacking those bales, we'd gap them out, six-inch spacing between each stack, and then still throw that tarp up over top of it just to protect in case any more wind, or sorry, not wind, but rain, rain or any yeah. other. And then that way that air could get between those bales, get them dried down. It did pretty good for the most part, you know, we'd... We'd still have some damaged bales where they'd heat a little too much and end up that caramelization or tobacco cure. And we'd feed it to our cows or haul it to a feed yard. Always seemed like, you know, at least you saved the majority of it and didn't have much loss and still get to haul it off to the dairy and they were happy. Scott, tell me about your hay press. When I mentioned earlier that Pat, uh, Pat Tweedy from Stephens gave me the opportunity to come up into that Northwest region and tour some hay operations. I sold out of our Nebraska operation and purchased a place in Texas. When I did so, we dropped away from row crop. It left some money on the table, and I was able to put towards buying a hay slicer from Stefan Systems out of Oregon. Something that I've wanted to do, honestly, since I've been 19 years old. There was a hay slicer operation in Yankton, South Dakota, T3600, and it sliced three by threes and three by fours. We used to sell hay to zoos, um, we, we actually cracked open into a lot of feed stores back then when guys are saying that you couldn't do it with the hay slicer. We had really good results with it. You know, it was incredible what we were doing with it. And due to some unforeseen circumstances, that deal didn't work out. Well, that thing just stuck in the back of my head. I, I couldn't afford it when it came up for sale. Whenever I got the opportunity to sell for a pretty good price in Nebraska and relocate into Texas, the opportunity was on the table again, and there's no hay slicers in Texas. I mean, there's been a couple. Um, they've ran into some issues. I think, and at least what I've heard, that those are some investor-type deals. Didn't work out. It wasn't that it wasn't financially working. It's just they had different ideas. So in my deal, you know, no investor but me and my wife. I better hold up on that one. She might smack me upside the head for that. Uh, <laughs> she stuck her neck out on this with me. Um, they're definitely not a cheap item. They're definitely not for somebody that's just looking to experiment in the marketplace. So we did. We, we stuck our neck out and we purchased a new 3600 twine tie system instead of a strapper system with full intentions of being able to bring three by threes and three by fours of straight grass, um, alfalfa grass mix, straight alfalfa, um, straw, hoping to run that through. Uh, slice it into little bales in which it'll make, you know, 50 to 60 pound three tie bales is what they'll be. And then we've got a end unit on there that'll bundle and strap into a bundle. And then we can either spear it or set it on a pallet. And then that way 
you know, at, at the end user point, we can either go to a feed store or we can go straight to a ranch or a boarding facility or a zoo, just anything. I mean, you can have a set of spears, poke into it, a grapple, grab it, pallet forks and, and slide underneath of it and pick it up. Gives you a really, a really versatile bundle and not, not to take away from the other bundling units that are out in the marketplace that are picking up these little two-tie bales. This thing is so much more compact. You can stack up a lot higher. It takes up less space. Gives some of these, there's like the, the rodeo people that are traveling across the road that got hay pods on top of their trailer. Now they can stick another 150 pounds more in top of that hay pod than they could with a, stick, uh, with a traditional two-string bale. So they can get a couple more days out of that or, you know, honestly, they can get a few more days out of it <laughs> without having to buy that. Maybe the overpriced stuff on the road. I better be careful because I'm also trying to sell to that retailer. Let's <laughs> <laughs> try to resell it. So I better be careful on some of that. But, but yeah, that's, I mean, it's just been, a, it's really, it's just been a dream that we've, we've wanted to do for so long. We really wished we could have done that in Nebraska. Not that financially that we couldn't have swung it, but we had some other hiccups in there that we didn't have the power in the area that, that we were living in. So at a cost of, pretty much a small fortune to get the power put in to operate that machine. You know, I've bugged Pat and I've bugged Dave Steffen for so long on that thing. I mean, I mean there for a while, almost felt like I got to know him just because I was always bugging him about a slicer, whether it was pricing a new one or, Hey, is there, there's a used one popped up at whatever state you might be interested in this one. You know, they've done really good. I mean, that family is incredibly humble, you know, is they didn't know who I was, you know, they didn't have to take the time out of their day or as many days as they did to, to deal with at that time, a punk kid that was dreaming big and just couldn't do it. You know, then I moved down here and then I reach out to them and I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm sitting in position. I can finally make this happen. And it hasn't been an easy, easy one either. You know, we purchased this thing a year ago, back in January Dave and Pat, they shipped it down here uh, right around the 4th of July. We finally got this installed. I mean, no joke, about three weeks ago, got power to it, hooked up, and actually ran some hay through it here just, just first week in, uh, sorry, first week in February is the first hay we got to finally run through it. So <laughs> talk about a, a long journey. <laughs> that does sound like quite the process. It's not... Exactly the same as going down to the dealership and buying the baler. Not a bit. <laughs> and it's intimidating, too. So um, anybody that's out there, because, I mean, I've been very open about buying it. I've been very open. Like, if different people contact me and question me about it, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really open about it because I'm, I'm just super, I'm super happy that I've gotten the opportunity to purchase this thing and, and the opportunity to, to go back and do what I was doing at one time to offer hay to some retail locations in these smaller bales, these little more compact bales. I mean, I just really look forward to that. And for the end user, they can either buy that big bale for their house and then have that little bale that's sliced out of the same quality of hay to take out on the road just to give them that opportunity. There's just something something different on the marketplace. You know, always feels like we always try to set ourselves apart a little bit, kind of as a sales pitch, maybe a little bit. The hay slicer thing is definitely something that you know, like watching guys like I'm going to use Tim Hall, like because Tim Hall's on Instagram, Tim Hall's on Facebook. And I'm going to tell you, like, he goes by the hay ninja. This man is incredible to watch. That guy makes hay slicing look easy. 
<laughs> it's not. <laughs> I mean, and Tim and Tim's a super good guy. I've bugged Tim's many a times about slicers and stuff like that. And it's it's just fun to talk to those other guys. Like uh, Mike Kill, I've I've bugged him just a little bit. He's got a hay slicer. He's actually got a similar one to what I have, or I, I have someone, I better be careful of that. I have a similar one to him. <laughs> it's a twine tie model. And those guys have all been, that's one thing that's really neat about all of them. They're all really nice guys. Like you can call them or you can email them. You can text them. You can Facebook message them and you can ask them some little things and they're all nice. I mean, they take the time to talk to you. They're, they're what farming is thought to be or what used to definitely be, you know, kind of that neighborly you can you can reach out to them and they will communicate with you. They'll they'll give you some tips or tricks if you needed it. I want to pause there because you just said that these farmers handling presumably tens of thousands of tons of hay at, hay at scale are just good down to earth guys. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing, like super down to earth. It's like an art, you know. It's like an art. They they've got their niche in the marketplace and they know it, you know, they're comfortable with what they have. They're comfortable with what they're doing and they feel good about talking to you. I don't know. Is it, is it maybe because uh, you're still your own person? You can't just go and copy them and make it turn out the same. Hey, will fool you, <laughs> you know, and especially through these slicers, it can be the most beautiful. Hey, and you go to pump it through that slicer it could turn out an absolute disaster. Like, uh, I got some really good orchard grass. I mean, this stuff is absolutely incredible. I mean, whenever you got the Stefan family down here working on the slicer and we're slicing these things through and they're sitting there telling you like, oh my gosh, this is nice. I mean, <laughs> that's what's so cool. Oh, they know what it, nice hay is. That's for sure. That's right. You know, and Dale Stefan is the one that's helping and, and, and Travis that works for Stefan's, he was here and they're, they're doing a great job. I mean, these guys are making slicing look simple. And so they turned the controls over to me and, uh, we'll just say it kind of looked like a headless chicken maybe for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was frantic. Uh, I'd panic over the dumbest things. I mean, little red light would be flashing on the control panel and I'd be looking at those guys and they're like, we're not here. And I'm sitting there going like, but you're here. (laughs) And they'd just be like, calm down pull the strings, hit the button, it'll run. <laughs> like, okay, okay, all right. And You're then, talking about riding a learning curve. Oh, my gosh, a huge learning curve. Um, it, it, if I can remember what it was like to ride a bicycle with no training wheels for the first time, I'm going to guess it's probably pretty close to that. <laughs> but you had a big hill to go down, though, on the first ride. Right, right. <laughs> no, definitely a learning curve. I am definitely haven't figured it out yet. Um, I ran into a little complications, so we're shut down for a little bit. I don't know if it was operator error or not yet. I've just had a few things going on the last few days, so I haven't had time to go in and troubleshoot with Stefan's on it. We're hoping maybe Monday or Tuesday I'm going to finally get to climb in there. And The other thing, beauty of technology, I, I can throw them on FaceTime, and they can see what I'm seeing, and we can work on it. So that's kind of a neat thing. It's pretty neat uh, how small the world is. That is, absolutely, yeah, because, yeah, it's it's only... Roughly, what, 1,400 miles, 1,200 miles, something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a little way. (laughs) It's only a couple hours time zone difference. (laughs) So it's I I can sleep in a little bit and then still have those guys help me (laughs) when they're getting to work. But it is. It's really neat. And then then the other thing on that slicer is Dave's got it set up that 
as long as I get an internet connection, I can hook a laptop computer up to it and then he can go in and run diagnostic on it and he can see what's going on for pressures, timing. Um, he can, he can also reset some stuff on there if it, if it needs it. It's really neat what they've got. I mean, for a machine, when you literally, when you walk up to it, you're like, Oh, it's pretty neat. You know, just bunch of iron, you know, green, white, and yellow, <laughs> you get into it and it's way more complex and, and it just, it's neat. <laughs> it's a neat what they can do with it. Let's go back to your marketing plan to go along with this. You were talking yeah. about feed stores and zoos and those kind of things. What else are you thinking? With my slicer, it'd be tough to do an export. I can't put the compression down on the bale to make much over that 60. If I do, it'd be kind of hard to do. I run into a little bit of an issue there, so I'm a little bit out on that. One thing I thought is is uh, in the area, because I'm in Texas now, so one thing that happens down here is a lot of little two-string bales and that coastal and Bermudas. They're buying those bundlers, and, you know, you can only cover so many acres with a small baler, you know, and it takes so much more manpower to do that. We've got a big square baler. We know of a few other guys in the area that are running big square balers. What we're hoping to do, and we've talked to the guys, like we've got a we've got a family in the area right here, uh, the Russell family. They've done Bermuda for quite a long time. They've got a big square baler, and we've talked to them a little bit about hopefully getting the custom slice. You know, they got little square balers, and they've got a couple of bundlers. We're really hoping we can get those guys to come in. We'll custom slice for them just so many dollars a ton. And then that way we can, they bring the truckload in, we'll slice through it. When they bring the next one in, we'll set those little bales on a truck for them. Or, or if they needed to, they could send a customer down and pick it up. We're not, you know, we can sign those non-competes and stuff like that or non-disclosures. That, their customer is their customer. We don't want, we definitely don't want to touch that at all. We just want to be able to slice hay. I mean, that's that's really what it's about. We just, we really enjoy the hay side of the ag market. I mean, it'd be neat to do the exporting. We've done a little bit of that in the past. Whenever that slicer was in South Dakota, we exported to Russia. What a cool experience. I mean, dealt with a broker the whole time, so it really wasn't anything strenuous on us. I mean, biggest thing is like, like you touched on, you know, getting under that 12% moisture. We had enough hay, and it was low grade. It was just, just lower grade feed quality mm-hmm. alfalfa. So it's just mainly all first cutting, big stemmy, really yep. dry, <laughs> almost brown. <laughs> but that was pretty easy on our part as far as what we had to do. We just They gave us some guidelines. We just had to meet them, and we did. I mean, it'd, it'd be fun to do that here. And, and you know, and then talking about, like, uh, possible marketing. So I, I import twine, net wrap, and bale film. And when those factory owners come over and visit us, um, I showed them or I introduced them to what else we do besides dealing with them. And when they seen the little bales, the first thing that goes off in their head is, uh, we know people that import these from the country. Um, they're like, will you sell to us? Like, I'd like to, but I don't know if I can really fill a 40-foot can with enough weight to justify the bad parts. There is potential. Um, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to say no to it. It's worth a try and see if we can meet those requirements or or close enough to those requirements that they're satisfied. But I just don't know if I can. Pretty new, you know, pretty fresh at it, and definitely intimidated. I'm looking at it. I I never I never mark anything off the table. I'll put it like that. I guess I'm a pretty open-minded in agriculture. You definitely have to be open-minded, and in the hay world, definitely, because uh, you never know until you try with hay. <laughs> or until somebody does. Thank you so much for sharing. 